H.R. McMaster needs no introduction, but perhaps he might like one. With that in mind, a few highlights. He was the National Security Advisor, the 26th. He served as a commissioned officer in the United States Army for 34 years before retiring as a Lieutenant General in June 2018. He's the author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, and the award-winning Dereliction of Duty, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies That Led to Vietnam. He has published scores of essays, articles, and book reviews on leadership, history, and the future of warfare. He hosts the Battlegrounds podcast and is a panelist on the Goodfellows podcast, which comes from the Hoover Institution, where he is the Fuad Michel Ajami Senior Fellow. I'm proud to say he also serves as the chairman of the Board of Advisors at FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. He's with us today, as is Bradley Bowman, the Center's Senior Director. It's nice that you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. General McMaster, you know, it occurs to me, some listeners, to their shame and humiliation, may not know who Fuad Ajami was and they really we could do a whole podcast just on Fuad Ajami and maybe one of these days you'd like to do it. but give just do a thirty second just tell who Fuad Ajami was okay so he he was one of my favorite people first of all he was an incredibly empathetic person who was also extraordinarily wise wise because of his knowledge of Middle Eastern history and and also I think his basic humanity. I mean, he was just a fine person and a great scholar. And what Fouad Ajami did best is help explain what we could achieve with a sensible, sustainable policy toward the Middle East, obviously cognizant of the limits of what we could achieve. But he was he was a professor. He was a gentleman. He was a scholar and a, and a dear friend. And it's a great honor to hold the chair at Hoover named for him. And, and his wife is also an amazing person, uh, Michelle. Uh, I'm I'm really glad glad I asked because that's a fascinating answer. I'll just I met Jim Woolsey, former CIA director, introduced me to him many many years ago, and I remember Jim saying, "You're going to like Fuad. He's a Lebanese Arab Shiite neoconservative." <laughs> and now it's a little unfair, not in the, uh, only in the last adjective, because what Jim meant by that was he believes that American. Power is a force for good in the world. That's what Jim was referring to there. Okay, so I wanted to, uh, Brad. You never did. You ever get to meet Fuad? I, I don't think I ever did. I wish I had. You've read any of his books? If not, you, and I, miss, I miss him. I miss his beard and oh. his, his raspy voice. He was Cliff, the Middle East. I mean, it's, I just love. I mean, yeah, I, I could listen to him for hours. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, you know, in terms of he was pro-Palestinian, but he was not at all anti-Israeli. He right. was looking for a way for right. these two peoples of the Middle East to coexist. He would go to Israel. He was I, scholars there loved him. Anyway, we'll go on with that. Look, I mentioned also your book, Battlegrounds: The Fight to Defend the Free World. So something I've been thinking about and attempting to write about: the role of the war in Ukraine in relation to the fight to defend. The free world. Is this war in Ukraine in any way about defending the free world? Because the isolationists say it isn't. Just a- <laughs> <laughs> it, it absolutely is, Cliff, because really what it is, is it is another uh, more intense, more brutal campaign in Putin's sustained effort to undermine the West, to undermine uh, our, our democratic nations, our, the United States and, and our allies, um, and, and to do so really by dragging us all down. And then, and using 
what I would call the four D's of Putin's playbook, right? Disrupt, right? Continue to disrupt the West with cyber attacks like those that he initiated against Estonia in 2007. You know, how about physical attacks like the, like the reinvasion of, of Ukraine that we're seeing now? But that, of course, that's not even unprecedented. He invaded Georgia in 2008 and he invaded Ukraine for the first time in, in, uh, in, two th- in, in, uh, 2014. And then, and then, uh, and then part of this disruption is to, to disinform, right? To, Putin knows that he doesn't really have the power to compete with us on our own terms. And you can see that with the lack of military strength. His economy is the size of Italy's economy and now shrinking due to sanctions. But, but what he, what he does is try to sow doubts across the free world and to, to create a crisis of confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. Most Americans think of that in terms of, you know, of attacking our elections 2016 and 2020. But, you know, Putin attacks our elections, but he doesn't really care who gets elected. What he wants is just for a large number of Americans to doubt the legitimacy of the, of the result. And so he disinforms. And then he, the fourth, the third D is he denies. He, he denies even the most brazen aggression. You know, this is a war of, of NATO aggression. This is a, a war to denazify Ukraine. This is a defensive war. I mean, this, this is, this is all ridiculous, of course. But he, remember, this is, he, he didn't shoot down the airliner over, over Ukraine uh, after the 2014 uh, invasion. And he didn't aid and abet Assad in the serial episodes of mass homicide in the Syrian civil war, including the use of the most heinous weapons on earth, nerve gas and other chemical agents to, to commit mass murder of civilians. So de- denial is the, is the third D. And then final dependence, to create dependence that weakens any kind of a response. And that's dependence of some elites who he buys off, like Gerhard Schroeder, for example, in, in Germany, uh, or dependence, obviously, on, on Russian hydrocarbon exports. And so this is not new, and it, but it's a campaign designed to drag us down because Putin knows he cannot make Russia great unless everyone else fails because he doesn't have the power to make Russia great on its own terms. He essentially, his, his, his concept is to be the last man standing. Right, right. You know, May 9th, there were a lot, there were a lot of people, Brad, I'll start with you on this one, who said, oh, well, May 9th, we're going to really learn a lot because that's the day when they celebrate the victory of 1945, which is generally called the Great Patriotic War. But I want to go back to that in a second. Um, but basically, it was, uh, what's the technical term, kind of a nothing burger? <laughs> yeah, no, they, uh, uh, Jim McMaster has said eloquently before that, you know, uh, uh, parades are, are interesting to look at and, and fun to watch, but they don't necessarily tell anything about real combat capability. I think one of the mistakes I made in the lead up to this unprovoked invasion in Ukraine is I focused too much on numbers of equipment and rather than looking also at do they have the operational concepts, the training, the sustainment and logistics in place to implement, as General McMaster has talked eloquently about combined arms operations. And so I'm so glad that they've had these problems. And, and one thing I did get right is, you know, that we should look at history and, and General McMaster is a historian, whether you think look at Thermopylae or other places, you never, never underestimate the determination of a free people defending their homes. And uh, when you combine that extraordinary bravery of the Ukrainians with Western military support and, and training uh, that we had started, uh, it goes back with the California National Guard back to the 1990s, helping them build a non-commissioned officer corps, something that the Russians struggle to have in terms of an effective non-commissioned officer. When you combine all this together, the will to fight a free people defending their homes, the, the, the provision, the belated, sadly, but now robust provision of Western security assistance and some of the training, it's... Um, I'm glad to see that, uh, you know, we, we've seen extraordinary losses in Russian combat power. But Cliff, if I may very quickly, just going back to zooming out, what's at stake here? I mean, and again, General McMaster has written so eloquently about this in his book, Battlegrounds. It, you know, it's a clash of two worldviews. It's, it's a clash of might makes right authoritarianism. And rule and, and, and a belief in rule, law, territorial integrity, and national sovereignty. And that sounds very wonky and academic, but here's how I boil it down, you know, to, to our, our fellow citizens. Who do you believe with a question? Who do you believe should call the shots in Ukraine? Should it be the Ukrainian people and their duly elected government or should it be Vladimir Putin? And, and, and that's, oh, well, of course, the Ukrainian people. Well, if you believe that, then what are these arguments I'm hearing uh, in, in the United States so often blaming this unprovoked, egregious invasion on NATO expansion? Give me a break. Putin knows NATO is not Nazi Germany. He knows that it's it's not Napoleon in terms of a threat to Russia. As I've said before, and Cliff, is, as you know, know and written as well, um, he resents NATO expansion, in my view, because when a country becomes a member of NATO, it prevents him from invading, occupying, and bullying the country. And Russians are often not happy unless they have Russian soldiers on both sides of the board. 
Yeah, and and it's and when you're joining NATO, you're joining a defensive alliance. There's, NATO has never done what the Warsaw Pact did. Say, oh, we will go and suppress the Hungarian Revolution. We'll go suppress the our, the uh, Prague Spring. We'll, we, NATO doesn't do that. You want to join NATO? You're welcome in the club, maybe. Okay, but it's a purely purely defensive alliance. Uh, there's one little point I want to make because nobody else has made it. And I th- uh, I think it's kind of significant. We keep calling this, the we call this the celebration on the May 9th of the Great Patriotic War. But if you look at the Russian, I'm an old Russianist, right? It's That's not the right translation. That would be Patriotichesky Vaina. It wasn't a Patriotic War. It was the Otechestvinaya, the Fatherland War. Now, why is that important that it was the Fatherland War? Because Fatherland is is about nationalism very specifically. And what's more, he is echoing what Stalin did in World War II. Stalin in World War II understood he could not get people to sacrifice and fight for communism or for the USSR, but they would fight for the Fatherland, for Russia, and on that basis— patriotism, nationalism, he got them to sacrifice, and they did against the German, against the Nazis, with whom, of course, Stalin earlier, they keep forgetting, had a pact and uh, based on which they, they were dividing up uh, Poland, in particular, and Eastern Europe. So I just think that's an interesting thing. Well, I want, well, getting back to one thing that you said, Brad, but to you, the difference between how Russians have fought in Ukraine and how Ukrainians, and when I, as I watched that, I thought of your your many references in writing about the warrior ethos. Because what you're seeing, I think, is a unbelievable, almost, I mean, a, a really astounding warrior ethos on the part of the Ukrainians and the part of Zelensky. I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And you're not seeing that on the part of the Russians who are either fleeing or wondering why they're there or stealing refrigerators and putting them on trucks and sending them back to, to Russia. Yeah. Gosh, well, this is what I think is often missed, you know, by... By analysts and and Brad mentioned, you know, it's, you, you have to obviously do do more than count military equipment or look at it in parade. It's really the human dimension of war, and 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 the the uh, the historian who captured this better than anybody, I think, is John Keegan, in the face of battle, where he looked at at at, uh, at battles that occurred in the same geographic area across uh, five centuries, right, four centuries, five centuries. And you know, from the Battle of Agincourt to to uh, to to you know, Napoleonic Wars, then to to uh, uh, to to World War One, and in the in the and, and much of the book is about changes in tactics. You know, the age of infantry, the age of cavalry, the age of artillery. But in the conclusion, he highlights what struck him the most about this research, and he he writes that what what battles have in common is human, the struggle of of men and, and women trying to reconcile their instinct for self preservation with the achievement of some aim over which others are trying to kill them. And so, and so that's really what it comes down to. And if you're fighting to defend your home, right, you're going to, to, to reconcile that sense of self-preservation in favor of the achievement of that right aim, right? This also goes back to some of the earlier, uh, earlier theologians uh, of war. This is Thomas Aquinas, right? Who, who talked about for a war to be just, you have to have a right intention, Right. And so, so the Russians, they, they know that this is not, the soldiers have to know this is not a right intention. Plus, they have not been imbued, uh, as you mentioned, Cliff, with, with the warrior ethos, which is, which is, are, are, is really based on principles such as, as honor, as, as self sacrifice and courage. And the word ethos is really a covenant that 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 warriors have with one another because and, and determines what they expect of one another to be courageous in battle. But also one of those expectations is that they'll treat non-combatants, you know, respectfully and and that they'll take additional risk to protect non-combatants. And this is also your know, juice in bellow theory, right? Of of in, ter- in terms of discrimination and proportionality. Uh some of the principles that that our for, armed forces are imbued with. Uh, but also, there's a covenant between the warriors and, and and society, right? And and what society expects of them, and you know what Putin expects of of his own armed forces is brutality. And so, the, I I think the the human rights investigations that are going on, one of the problems that they won't have, as they often do in in these human rights investi- investigations, is establishing a chain of command. The chain of command is in place and is complicit uh, with the brutalization and the indiscriminate murder of civilians. Now, what happens, Cliff, is in the absence of the war ethos, units are prone to disintegrate, to disintegrate 
because they lack the confidence in one another and the bonds of common purpose and trust and really affection that grow within military organizations. And as th- these atrocities are condoned, encouraged, they also erodes the moral character of these organizations. And what happens then is disintegration. You're seeing some of these Russian units disintegrate. And in the face of battle, what, what, what Keegan concludes is he says that ultimately battle is aimed at the disintegration of human groups. And so what you endeavor to do as you prepare unit for combat is to build bulwarks against that kind of disintegration with confidence, with trust, uh, with, with faith in one another, with confidence in their ability to fight together as a team. That's, that's missing. You know, for confidence that you have a right intention. That's missing on the Russian side. So, okay, here's a question because I and, I, and I really, I don't understand this, but in, in, in history, you have various empire builders going out to conquer and their armies often did well. I'm thinking of the Romans. I'm thinking of Napoleon. I'm thinking up of to Genghis. A, up to a point. Napoleon, up to a point. <laughs> yeah, up to the point. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Russian but, winter got But in other words, for, for, you know. <laughs> in other words, the point you're making about a warrior feeling I am fighting for a just cause, I am defending my homeland, my family, this was not true of the great empires of the past. How did they get, or did their soldiers believe, no, I am fighting to establish an empire and that is a just cause. Is, is that how Napoleon's troops to a point or, or Roman troops, or that's what they, or? Well, especially from the time of Napoleon, you could actually go back, I think, to you know, to, to the religious uh, wars, certainly. I mean, if, if you if you uh, uh, if you want to look at at, at excessive will mm. and commitment based mm. on religion, all you have to do is visit Masada, right? Right. Where, right, where you right. see that that rather than to surrender to the Romans, they actually committed suicide. Massive right. Suicide. They fought to they fought incredibly valiantly over an extended period of time, and then when, when the odds were were now you know, just uh, uh, just tipped uh, so much in the favor of the Romans, so that's the ultimate will. And of course, there are many religious wars, you know, from the Crusades. I think you, if you look at the, you know, the the uh, Thirty Years' War, the most devastating war, you know, per capita, maybe in, in history. And this is where you have, you know, you have uh, you have Gustavus Adolphus, you know, on on the Protestant side, you know, really uh, integrating a lot of new military capabilities, but accessing this kind of fervor from the population. And then, of course, Napoleon is. Is credited, you know, with the American Revolution. We shouldn't skip over that. But but the but Napoleon's credited with the levy on Moss. Yeah. Whereas prior to the levy and Moss, armies were raised seasonally. They were raised through a number of nobles, you know, who would raise different parts of the army. But the levy and Moss was to appeal to French nationalist sentiment broadly, right? And and that is one of the big transformations in war, right? This is one of the biggest shifts uh, in warfare. To have occurred in, in human history, and and then uh, and I think it's still uh, you know still apparent today in trying to galvanize popular sentiment and and uh, and and mobilize. Uh, but you know now we have smaller, more professional forces, um, and uh, but war is still a contest of wills. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it really and, is. And what you, and the phrase of yours is is sovereignty versus servitude. So at Masada, they were not going to accept servitude. The Ukrainians are not, some people thought they would, they are not going to accept servitude. They they had an elected leader, an elected parliament. Now Putin's saying, that all goes, you listen to me. I give the orders, you report. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We'll sacrifice a lot for that. There's another great historical example, by the way, uh I just want to point out, the Ottoman invasion of Montenegro. Okay. I haven't thought about that in days. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about odds being stacked against us. So I'm I'm stealing this from Sebastian Younger's book, Uh Freedom, which I which I recommend. It's a long essay. You can read it in one sitting. And what he does, he tries to describe freedom, and he does it by describing a long walk along railroad tracks from New Jersey to Western (laughs) Pennsylvania. But he does this with some unnamed war veterans who probably he covered as a combat journalist. And he just talks about, you know, living outside and having very few needs and being in the open air and how this is a sense of freedom. And that's the, you know, and that's the theme through the book. You might say there's too much walking on railroad tracks, you know, but, but anyway, <laughs> not to criticize. It's a great book. He also wrote a great book called War, which also gets it at, uh, at a lot of the dynamics we're talking about. But, but he has the third part of the book, I think is called fight. And he says that, that fighting has always been associated with freedom. That, that that's why. People have fought is to be free, and he 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 tells the he te- he uses this example of the Montenegrins, 
you know, all of whom carried at least three weapons, you know, you know, like a, a you know, like a, a, pus- a pistol and a, a rifle and a, and a, and a sword. And, and just, just the Ottomans were unable to subjugate, you know, a, a tiny, tiny country, tiny, you know, province. By the way, another historical footnote that I'm sure, the, the, this phrase of patriotic war or fatherland war, it actually goes back even further. The Russian resistance to the French invasion of Russia under Napoleon I became known as the patriotic war or the fatherland war of 1812. So even when Stalin was using it, he was still harking. Again, a lot of people, a lot of peoples know their history better, a lot better than we do in the, in the or young people do in the U.S. now, which is, uh, which is probably too, uh, too bad. Well, can, can I make one yeah. comment on this on history? So, you know what I'll hear a lot of times? This goes to Brad's point where he said, like, some people are just, I, I just, you know, inexplicably apologetic for Putin. I mean, I don't understand it, uh, fully, uh, but, but I think part of it is this affinity for Putin who portrays himself as the defender of white Christianity, right? You know, and, 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 and so there's an affinity among uninformed people, I think, who think, well, you know, Putin's the one who's protecting us from, you know, the unwashed masses of those who are fleeing the horrors of the Syrian civil war, for example. But then there's another element of this as well, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of history. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, well, you know, we were allies with, you know, with, with the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, d- during during World War II, can't we just be allies again? And they forget, right? They they forget one of the most odious acts ever, which is the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which you know, which was an accommodation between Nazi Germany and Russia, essentially to partition uh, Poland. And and uh, and, and you know, the, the Soviets were were only the most reluctant of our allies, <laughs> and only allied with us because because you know uh, uh, Hitler made the mistake essentially of of. Uh, of invading Russia in in June of, of of 1941, and you know again made the same mistake Napoleon did. He looked at the map, but I guess he didn't look at the scale on the map. You know, and I, and I think also paradoxically, this is part of the mistake that, that Putin made as well. I mean, I when I looked at that initial invasion, I, I thought Cliff, it's done. There's no way he can do it. He's he's defeated mm-hmm. because if if you if you understand to some degree the improvements in, the, in Ukrainian forces, the weaknesses that we've been discussing in, in the Russian forces, but then look at the scale on the map and look at these cities and look at the number of, of troops. He, he invaded with 160,000 troops. Divide by four axes, right? Now divide by three again, because that's the close combat troops you have. And then and then add in the complexity of, of logistical sustainment, uh, the, the restrictive nature of the terrain, and how cities swallow armies. And and he can't do it if he still has designs on Kiev and Odessa. Forget it; it's, it's never going to happen. On, uh, on on your good, I think your last Goodfellas podcast, you said, and I think Neil Ferguson certainly agreed that Ukraine is going to win. I think you actually made that prediction. Um, but two questions on that: one is, from what I can tell about in in Donbass, which is the eastern section, and they're going south. It's it's stalemate, not in the sense that it's the, the conflict has stopped, or the is it stalemate in the sense that it's bloody, but it's it's neither side is making real progress yet. That's a and two, if the Ukraine wins, how does that how does that how does that express itself? Be, what does Putin do at the point he says I can't win? And you know what I mean? It's right, yeah. the right, end yeah. game is really hard for me to see. No, no, it's, and it's 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 hard for everybody to see. Nobody really knows. And you know, uh, Brad and I talk about this a lot. You know, the the war is it's a contest. The wills will be mentioned, but war is also uncertain. It's uncertain fundamentally because of, of its interactive nature. The future course of events doesn't depend on how much force Ukraine can marshal for a counteroffensive and 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 uh, and its ability to conduct a counteroffensive, retake territory, but also Russian reactions. And what Russia is probably better at defense than they are at offense. Offense is harder, right? It's difficult to integrate all arms and joint capabilities. In an offensive operation, it's much more easy to de- to conduct an area or mobile defense where you're in control of the terrain. You get to know the terrain. You can envision how the enemy is going to attack. You can set up defensive positions more deliberately. You can plan counterattacks and counterattack routes. You can plan your fires and position your artillery well in advance. You don't have to leap your artillery. I mean, it's just easier, right, to to, to defend. Uh, and then, of course, we just don't know what what Putin's going to do. You know, of course, he's been taking out and rattling his nuclear saber to, you know, to threaten escalation as a way of of uh, of constraining our, the support that we give to the Ukrainians. So I don't think anybody really knows what the future course events will, will be. But I do know that Russia is incapable, I believe, uh, of, of annexing even all of the Don- Donbass and and the southern coast certainly. 
Uh, but I do think Ukraine is going to develop the capability to conduct a counteroffensive and retake much, if not all, of the territory that Russia gained uh, since the renewal of the attack into Ukraine on February 24th. And uh, while we, well, I want to talk a little bit and have you elaborate, and Brad, Phil, you jump in on this, a little more about nuclear weapons, because there are people I'm concerned, as they should be, about the various nuclear options that Putin might have. For example, he has 10 times as many tactical nukes as we have, so he could use them. On the other hand, you can't rubble a city. I think I've heard you use that verb. You can't rubble a city with nukes any more than he rubbled Mariupol with conventional weapons. But he could do that just to upset the apple cart. He could escalate to de-escalate. He could hit Lithuania, for example, which is giving, you know, which which that's the road to Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave unattached to Russia uh, uh, further to the uh, to the west. He could say, OK, let me show you what I can really do. I'm going to take out, I don't know, Los Angeles or something, because we don't have Brad and I have written and talked about it, we do not have sufficient missile defense because it's been underfunded or defunded under the Obama administration. And we, we said so we, we can't we do not know we have deterrence by denial. So just both of you talk about the nuclear options he has and how realistic they are and how dangerous they are and et cetera. <laughs> Brad, why don't you go? You've done some really clear oh, thinking and, and work on this. I, I want, I'm I mean. eager to hear your thoughts, but um, just a, a few things come to mind, Cliff. Uh, one of the things that we talked about a bit in the in the podcast you hosted with Rob Sufer is just, you know, I think of the uh, the Budapest memorandum, right? Uh, which, uh, you know, we we published a piece on a month or two ago. And for listeners, this is, this is an agreement in 1994, where Ukraine agreed to give up the 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 Soviet nuclear weapons that were on Ukrainian territory based on some uh, nuclear proliferation concerns, in in return for that very significant concession, they got uh, reaffirmation of commitments from the signatories, which included the United States, United Kingdom, and Russia. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, you know, and in R- Russia committed to honoring the territorial integrity of Ukraine, not threatening the use of force, and not invading. Wow, what a wonderful reminder of you can't trust a thing the Kremlin says and that their signature means nothing. Not that we needed another example because that's their habitual behavior. And I do worry that if we don't come sufficiently uh, to to Ukraine's defense here, that the lesson that will be learned around the world is that if you don't have nuclear weapons, you better get them fast. And if you do have them, you better give, uh, you better not give them up. And that's a horrible, horrible lesson for, um, for countries like Iran and, and others. And even some of our close and allies, you know, for their own national security purposes have to ask themselves. I'm thinking of Japan and South Korea is like, is the U.S. nuclear umbrella solid? Is it to be trusted? Will the Americans have our back in the moment of need? I want to say yes to that. But when you look at the debacle in Afghanistan and other things, so often we're doing the opposite of smart. And uh, and I think that has consequences that are sometimes hard to draw a straight line between, but are nonetheless very real and very painful. And I would just say, you know, the, the whole Russian approach of escalate to de-escalate is based on the the assumption that that the United States and others will sue for peace on Russia's terms if it uses a tactical nuclear weapon. And I think that through whatever channels are available to him, we ought to let him know that it'll be escalate to suicide. I mean, if you, if you use these weapons, we have the means uh, to end your regime, uh, but also to do it through conventional means. We have the means to do it. So, of course, you know, that's a situation that we all want to avoid. But the best way to avoid that, I think, is through strength and resolve. And, and certainly, Cliff, to stop talking about everything we're not going to do. I mean, I, I really think that in, in many ways and – I don't mean to be hypercritical here, but I do think that this effort, you know, to and the belief that we have to do every, everything to avoid World War III plays into Russia's hands. Yeah. And then to list everything we're not going to do, I think, in advance of this invasion as he was marshalling forces uh, around uh, around Ukraine and the Black Sea, uh, we actually, in, in many ways, inadvertently, you know, greenlighted the the, the 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 invasion i mean I, and so, you know, we evacuated our, our embassy how embarrassing is that Claire? it's embarrassing i mean uh, you know we offered as you said we offered Zelensky a take out goes i don't need a ride you know i need, i need some weapons here you know i mean what are you talking yeah, about yeah pulling out our embassy bringing uh, taking our ships out of the black sea so it can be at russian lake makes no sense and one thing that Brad and i had talked about earlier and i i think you agree with this uh, there were those who were saying, okay, we need a no-fly zone. And Brad and I came to the conclusion, Brad really persuaded me, eh, a no-fly zone, probably not because it requires shooting down Russian aircraft and probably taking out anti-missile systems from Russian soil. But that is different from helping the Ukraine 
people, the Ukrainian people, to defend themselves by giving them weapons. Because we're a sovereign nation. Ukraine's a sovereign nation. We have the right to give them assistance, not least if they are under attack and the attack is meant to wipe them off the face of the earth. If we were to allow Putin to say, you can't give them any bullets to defend themselves, then every then that because i have nuclear that means we're taking orders from putin and now we are a second rate power for the foreseeable future we're not a great power and he has he's he's defeated us essentially if we if we were to say, to say that right right exactly you know and you know there are people who will say that it's escalatory to provide defensive capabilities but actually it's i think it's escalatory not to not to provide them because if countries don't have deterrence by denial the ability to convince Putin in this case that he can't accomplish his objectives with the use of force, Putin will act. And and so this gets back to our, you know, our NATO enlargement um discussion. You know, what if the Baltic states were not members of NATO? I think they would already have been subsumed uh I mean, within within just, within Russia. Yeah, I agree. Just look at history. I mean, who does Putin the point I was trying to make earlier, who does Putin invade? He invades Georgia in two thousand eight, Crimea twenty fourteen, the the what he what he did in Donbass since twenty fourteen, fourteen thousand roughly Ukrainians dead. He invades and occupies non NATO members. And thus far, thank goodness he doesn't NATO members. And so this plays right in to the what we're seeing in the headlines right now, conversations about Sweden and Finland potentially applying mm-hmm. for joining NATO. And and we're gonna hear the same sort of uh, what HR is called strategic narcissism, I think coming to the fore here, right? Oh, we don't want to provoke Putin. That's the same reason why the Obama administration would not arm Ukraine when even though they were begging, you know, thank you for the blankets, Poroshenko in front of a joint session of Congress. I can't defend my country with blankets. Please help me defend myself. We've seen now what the Ukrainians are willing to do with their lives to defend their country if it was simply our support. And as you made, the point you made, Cliff, in your recent column is we have a sovereign right to arm any country in the world we want to arm, Right. And it's like, oh, you know, well, you know, doesn't uh, Putin have legitimate interests? Of course he does. But those interests don't include invading and occupying your neighbors. And when you do that, there are going to be consequences and we have a right to respond. Right. And that brings us uh, that brings us in a way to Taiwan and China. Now, the uh, part of my argument has long been as a sort of amateur Putinologist that he sees himself as the czar and his mission to the extent he has a mission. I think he does. Yeah, because he could live his life very comfortably after all for the rest. He's probably the wealthiest man in the world. Probably the wealthiest man in the world. He doesn't have to obey any laws. He can kill people he wants to. His girlfriend's a rhythmic gymnast. I don't know what that means, but it sounds rather appealing. Uh, (laughs) He's got got his dock on the Black Sea. (laughs) He's got his sight right on the Black Sea. So... I, he, but he wants to restore the Russian Empire, and that he can't do that without, certainly without Ukraine, and and then Georgia and the Baltic certainly would would, would follow. Um, and he and you know some nations got have gotten used to not being, uh, have becoming nations after they were empires. The British, some of them are nostalgic for it. Some of the French are. I don't think the Portuguese uh, or the Swedes think about it <laughs> overly. China is still, in, I think, in, in many ways, an empire. Uh, East Turkestan, we call it Xinjiang, but I think it's really it's it's part of Central Asia. Those are not Han, and the Han Chinese dominate. There's almost, if you want to talk about an apartheid system, Han Chinese dominate the empire. Now they, Taiwan has never been ruled by a communist party. I don't think Taiwan wants to, but I would hope that the people of Taiwan and the leaders of Taiwan are learning some lessons about what they have to do. And I would, and then my other question, my other large question is, okay, so Xi Jinping is thinking, hmm, what do I take away from this? Should I go quick while America seems to me to be weak because Taiwan's going to be stronger? Or is it too risky because the Taiwanese will act like the Ukrainians and they'll fight me on the ground and I'll lose and I cannot afford to lose? I mean, these are speculative questions, yeah, but right, they're important right. questions. They are important questions. Yeah, I, Cliff, I don't think we know yet, but I would say that he's probably thinking the latter, that the time to do it is now. And and the reason is, I think he's he's fearful. He's fearful of missing what I think he's now probably realizing is a fleeting window of opportunity to act, to act before the Chinese, the frailties in the Chinese economic system become even more apparent. Um, most of it's self-inflicted, you know, in terms of the ex- excess debt in the real estate sector, the crackdown in the tech sector, the zero COVID policy, and and how that's affecting economic growth and the people's expectations, which he wants to keep high and to meet those expectations because. The party's narrative is that your life is so much better off thanks to the Chinese Communist Party. 
And this is how he prevents any kind of opposition from forming, any questioning of the of the party's legitimacy and its wisdom. And then and then also you know, he thinks there's a fleeting winter of opportunity, as you mentioned, because Taiwan has not yet integrated some of the really important defensive capabilities there that we're now you know selling to them, uh, especially short of ship missiles, long-range air defense, uh, long-range fires generally, smart mines. Uh, a whole range of air defense that, like we see the parts of the Stinger missile that could be distributed maybe to police forces to deny landing zones and so forth, that would make Taiwan indigestible. I mean, it's important to remember Taiwan is the state of Mar- the size of the state of Maryland. It's very mountainous in the east. The concentrate the, the the population is concentrated in the west in dense urban areas. Because of mudflats, there are only a couple of good places to land. Like it's not an easy military task, you know, for the People's Liberation Army to to to. Um, you know, to invade and and to and to and to establish control over over Taiwan, and but also you know he's made this promise right, and he said this is something that can't wait for generations anymore in terms of bringing Taiwan uh, force forcibly uh, bringing Taiwan into into the control under the control of the mainland. He has the Chinese Communist Party Congress coming up in October November, where he's going to be you know in effect coronated as as the next Chairman Mao you know for uh, for life. And and I think he feels pressure to make good on his promises. And by the way, I believe he, the party and Xi Jinping are preparing the Chinese people psychologically for war. And uh, and 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 Matt Pottinger has done some the best work on this in terms of uh, of you know reading the speeches and making the connections. And and this is why they're extolling you know that what what they see as as the great virtue uh, associated with uh, with Mao's. Um, War in in Korea, which they're calling the the war against American aggression, the biggest blockbuster, you know, after Wolf Warrior Two, was this movie on on the the Korean War, and then Xi Jinping has also given speeches about the Korean War, saying that Mao was wise because he delivered one blow to prevent a hundred. So he's equating Chinese intervention in Korea as a preemptive war, and he's making really a, 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 a not very. Um, you know, not very opaque, pretty transparent connection to Taiwan, and he's he's also using the word sacrifice. It's going to be time for us to sacrifice, and and so I think we have to take it very seriously. We ought to be accelerating all the defensive capabilities. And, and by the way, Matt Potcher, who among other things chairs our Asia program here at FDD, he's also made the connection between the Korean War, the first kinetic action of the for of the Cold, Cold War, War right. and the Ukraine War, which one might see. And Brad and I have talked about this. I, I'm curious to know your opinion. One might see, I think Matt does, I think uh, Elliot uh, Abrams of the Council of Foreign Relations, as the, the first kinetic action of Cold War II, in other words, and, be, and, that, and that there's utility in framing what's going on now, which began not on the 24th of February, but on the 4th of February, when Putin and Xi Jinping signed an agreement that they would have a relationship with no limits, and, no limits. Uh, and and that that's the beginning of this new Cold War. And the reason to see it that way is not that we fight it exactly the same way any more than we fought the Second Cold Second World War the way we fought the yeah. First Cold War. But to understand that this is not just a great power competition, which to me has a ring of moral equivalence. Right. It is a war of of, of values, of yeah. ideologies, and it is something we have to decide: Are we going to fight it, and we're going to win it? Or we're going to lose it because there's no third option. We're not going to not fight it <laughs> and, right. and win it. And what does that mean in terms of dispense spending and capabilities and NATO and all that? Do you? So I guess my hard question for you, sir, do you agree we're in a second Cold War? Yeah, I, I do agree we're in a second Cold War, and it, it's and I, I think historical analogies are important uh, because, it, as you as you said, it, it highlights what's at stake. But there are, there are significant differences as well. Of course, the biggest difference is the degree to which our economies are, our U.S. and Chinese economies are interconnected. And, and so this is something that we have to really work hard on because, you know, just as we saw that the very rapid rending of economic and trade relations and financial relationships with Russia, I think the same thing is going to happen with China. I, I think it's almost inevitable. I don't know what the scenario will be, whether it will be in the South China Sea or vis-a-vis Taiwan or maybe after, you know, he interns another you know, um, you know, three million people in concentration camps. Maybe then people will get a conscience. But I mean, I just think that it's it's the party has set out a path that that I think is going is going to highlight the incompatibility of that the China's authoritarian system in a way that's going to affect economic decisions. I think businesses are going to be facing stranded capital in China, uh, and and we're already seeing the vulnerabilities associated with supply chains that become over reliant on China. So you mentioned defense, which I think is a, there are huge implications for our defense budget and our defense strategy. 
but there are big, big implications on energy security and on on economic security, especially in in in, in fostering more resilient supply chains that are less reliant on China. And anybody who doubts whether or not we have to do this, just again read what Xi Jinping says when he talks about redoubling the efforts to surpass us economically and to do so in part by creating a dual circulation economy in which China uh, is is independent uh, of of international financial and economic systems or or, or or less dependent and and more resilient associated with any kind of economic or financial sanctions while he makes the world dependent on him for critical supply chains involving you know we, you know semiconductors everybody's focused on now but this is, you know, this is uh, renewable energy uh, equipment and hardware. It's communications equipment. It's, you know, the upchain or the, the upstream uh, components of that rare earths and so forth. Battery manufacturing, magnets. I mean, and, and this is very important. While we, we were just a few years ago when you were in the White House, an energy superpower, we were we had we we, we, we were doing a great job on that. Biden doesn't want to be an energy superpower. And he wants everyone to buy Teslas and electric vehicles, but that makes us more dependent on lithium, cobalt, rare earths, all things that yeah. China Magnus controls. Batteries. He yeah. is the energy. This is playing into our dependence. It's not does not make sense. If you believe, as I do, and I think we should be working more, that energy security is an aspect of national security, I think we're doing exactly the wrong thing right now. Cliff, you know, I, I think that's a great point and, and General McMaster's point as well. It, it seems to me, it sounds obvious when you say it, but, you know, the first step in defending ourselves and our interests effectively is realizing that we're under attack. And we've been under attack for years and years and years by the Chinese Communist Party. And it doesn't take the form of bombs and aircraft and ships right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it reminds me of maybe two gladiators in, in the Coliseum, you know, and, and one is the, the Chinese Communist Party and the other is us. And we've been asleep on the ground and they've been picking our pocket. And <laughs> And now we're waking up and finally starting to fight back. And then, of course, that's provocative, right, that we're fighting back. And so, you know, we got to realize that this is, as General McMaster has said eloquently, that this is a comprehensive, systematic, methodical campaign, multi-decade campaign they're undertaking. And the stakes for this competition and their assault are going to be felt at kitchen tables on main streets and on future battlefields. This isn't just, you know, who's going to win the next shooting war. This is, are we able to defend the prosperity, freedom, and security of the American people in our allies. And just tie, if I may very quickly tying together the Ukraine conversation in, in Taiwan, I've said this before, I just think it bears repeating. We, I, I just saw firsthand working in the Senate, and I've also seen it more recently, you know, the, we, we spend so much time worrying about provoking authoritarian bullies, you know, um, and so insufficient amounts of time arming beleaguered democracies before the invasion. And as General McMaster knows well, based on all of his military experience, it's so much easier to provide security assistance and training to people before the invasion starts. Um, and, and you know, if you go back and look at 2021, you know, I have good reason to believe there were very significant indications and warnings in early 2021 that Putin was going to do something serious in Ukraine. Even Secretary Blinken himself in November was warning everyone of it. Yet if you look at the weeks that were lost in the November, December, January timeframe in, in terms of providing weapons to Ukraine, that was valuable time lost. And, and so if we don't learn that lesson and apply it in Taiwan, we're going to see a, a, a mistake there. There, I fear, and we're going to invite or green light the very thing we don't want. And so that's very broad. What are some specific things? Well, you know, Admiral Montgomery and I have talked about long range anti ship missiles, you know, nine steps attack submarines, Guam air and missile defense, E 7, wedge tails. Taiwan security assistance, right? Taiwan is spending, depending on how you measure, about two to two and a half percent of their budget on defense. They need to be spending more. We should encourage them to spend more, but I think it's in our interest to help them have more money to buy the arms. And then arms, a quick last comment on arms deliveries. A lot of times when we announce an arms delivery to Taiwan, we all high five ourselves and celebrate. What we don't realize is that a lot of those uh, arms are not delivered for years and years later. And I'm thinking of the harpoon missile system, for example. Uh, we've talked about making Taiwan on a porcupine, one of the top things you want to help them do is to have ground-based missiles to target ships coming across the Taiwan Strait. The harpoon missiles would do that, but they're not going to get that for years, potentially after the window that the former commander of Indo-PACOM, Admiral Davidson, talked about. And so, you know, one of the areas of research here at FDD is what can we do post-arms sale announcement to expedite deliveries? What's the cue for particular weapon systems? It, are countries at the top of that list that should be there? Should we jump 
uh, Taiwan or Ukraine or Israel up higher? Can we look at interim capabilities? In the meantime, while they're waiting for that capability, is there something we can provide them to increase deterrence? Training. Uh, if you look at Taiwan, we're not training, I would argue, with deference to you, General, we're not training with Taiwan the way we can and should be. Um, and, and that's all self-imposed restrictions. Then lastly, what can we do to work with industry to expedite delivery? So I know that's a little long, long but just some very practical steps we, based on the lessons learned in Ukraine about what we can do to help Taiwan now, not, not years from now. And the one thing I just want to add to that is the Taiwanese, I mean, with, with affection, affection and respect, they need to do more too. And they need to understand we're here to help you, but you are going to defend yourself with our help. We're not going to, right. we're not your, pro, pro, we're not your, your, your guard. So you, that means you have to have be your people, like the Israelis, you have to have everybody who can going into the armed forces. You have they have to be when they get out, staying in the reserves. They have to be training they have on to a regular extend basis. Extend the enlistments, which are only extend you know, the what is it, like what, months yeah, now. Yeah, right. Yeah, so somebody, it, yeah. They got to extend the enlistments. They've got to show that no, we will, we will absolutely fight, and we can mobilize very quickly and very Develop efficiently. A Finland like. A reserve. Finland, a Finland like you know, reserve, yeah. an Israeli like reserve. Yeah, the Israelis, right. we, we, yeah. Brad and I were recently with American active duty officers in Israel, and, and they were kind of amazed because none of them had been there before. How everyone says, Yeah, when I was in the military, yeah, well, I'm still in the reserves, you know, yeah, well, everybody says that <laughs> women, men, everybody, because they all understand war is the natural state only through power and vigilance. Do you have periods of peace? Right. The, the training thing, the point, you know, so I made the point earlier about the California National Guard having over a thousand training uh, uh, incident, uh, instances with Ukraine since you know the mid-1990s, which helped, among other things, develop this non-commissioned officer corps. Um, and, and, and you mentioned Israel. I think Israel is a great example in terms of um, uh, working with our National Guard. We have the state partnership program where you pair up state National Guards with particular countries and they develop these long-term training relationships and and, and that pay off for both them and for us. Well, with Israel, they don't have a relationship with any one state national guard. They work with several state national guards. And so I th really think that's a model for Taiwan where we can say, hey, Taiwan, you need help with this, this, and this. Oh, okay. Well, this national guard is good at that. And we bring in several of the national guards, guards to develop these long-term relationships. But I mean, who better to help them with developing the reserve that General McMaster talked about than some of our national guard units? Yeah, they do and great training, right? They, 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 they do including great, in Ukraine, right? right? right. And because of, you know, yeah. these, are, these are people that you know, in many cases, Will have other jobs, and then they come and and they and do this. And so, what a great, uh, what a great and obvious connection to help them build that reserve capability that we need. And I know some work is underway on this, but we really need to get it in implementation. I would argue. And just a quick point on on Taiwan and Ukraine. Ukraine is providing the Taiwanese an example that they can do this, and they, which means defend themselves. Right. And, and as you mentioned, Cliff, maybe the Taiwanese over time have become over reliant on the assumption that the U.S. would respond to the next crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Now, of course, you know, I, I think that that's that we would respond to another crisis in the Taiwan Strait, but I think that the Taiwanese now should have greater confidence that if they integrate these new defense capabilities, if they have some policy changes in terms of terms of enlistment, if they develop a territorial force like the Ukrainians did on the fly, right? But but develop that kind of capability over time more deliberately, you know, with with weapons and training integrated, then uh, then they can make themselves indigestible. General McMaster, you've, I know you've focused a lot on Japan. I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts. It seems like Japan has really kind of turned a corner in terms of their willingness to, to work with Taiwan, uh, in light of the growing threat. I mean, is, is that what you're seeing as well? Absolutely. And, and you see this, you know, the, 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 uh, the conservative party in, in Taiwan is the LDP has been really concerned about, about Chinese increasing aggression in the region for a long time. Uh, prime Minister Abe, when he was first the prime minister, I think it was in as early as 2009, uh, coined the term, uh, the free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's been a really galvanizing. The Japanese have been a galvanizing force for collective security and, and, uh, developing, uh, really complementary capabilities between the United States, uh, and their self-defense force. And of course, you know, their southern islands are like, that's, you know, that's the other Taiwan Strait right there, mm -hmm. you know, on, on Taiwan's northern coast. And, and everybody covers often, you know, the overflights, uh, really oriented mainly on southern Taiwan of the, of the violation of the, uh, of the air defense, uh, um, zone, uh, in southern Taiwan. But what you don't hear reported a lot are the, is the PLA Navy's become increasingly aggressive mm -hmm. on the northern coast of Taiwan. I think what they're doing is telegraphing 
a potential a potential blockade. So I, I think what you what you'll see after 2020, after the end of this year, very likely, is going to be a series of escalatory steps by the People's Liberation Army, more economic coercion, uh, a, more efforts at co-option to buy off elites and uh, and to and to make Taiwan even more economically dependent on on the mainland. Uh, but you're going to have a step up in their information warfare uh, against against Taiwan. You could see some cyber attacks uh, against Taiwan, and then you could see more of these overflights, and then potentially even a blockade, a disruption of of of, of Taiwan's uh, telecom uh, or access to satellites. And I think what you're going to see is initially a final effort at at uh, annexation by invitation, which is going to fail. Um, but then maybe a, a series of coercive measures to say, hey, you know, you need to you know, run up the white flag uh, because you know you can't you can't deal with our overwhelming force. And then this would be kind of a, akin to the 2014 invasion of Ukraine to try to take these actions below the threshold of what might elicit a concerted military response from the United States. Um, and then if that fails, then you could have a more broad a broader war. But I think it's quite likely that we'll see this between the end of this year and 2025. All right, exit question for today because I'm very respectful of your time. Um, the Islamic Republic of Iran is an, is also an empire, and it tends to be a, a larger empire. Always has been. I was there in 1979. That was not an Iranian revolution. They were very clear. It's an Islamic revolution. Today, they they hold through Hezbollah Lebanon, which is a failing state, largely thanks to Iran and thanks to Hezbollah. They have uh, bucked up their uh, their sort of regent uh, in Syria, the uh, terrible dictatorship of uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad. More than half a million killed, more than five million uh, displaced or refugees, dreadful with Russian help as well. But Iran is there. The Houthis, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, the Iranians are behind them as well. Uh, they mean to become nuclear armed. The last thing we should do is be giving them billions of dollars to fund their terrorism, to fund their expansionism, to fund their aggression, their missile program. And of course, that's what the JCPOA, the the Iran deal, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which wasn't a plan of action at all. That's what it what would have done. It might maybe have kicked the can down the road a little bit. President Biden has been trying very hard with Robert Malley as his point man to get them to agree to some and making concession after concession. Well, we finally got to the point where the Iranians said, just one more thing on my list. You've got the uh, the IRGC, the Islamic, not Iranian, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It needs to be lifted from your foreign terrorist organization list. You don't mind, do you? And I guess when Mali went back, a lot of people said, we can't do that. They're, they're responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. We cannot pretend they're not a terrorist organization. And so far, at least, it appears Biden is holding firm on this. I would so my question is if you know if he said, "Hey, General McMaster, come in and talk to me about so I mean, I can get this deal if I just give him one more thing. What's it's symbolic, right? Ben Rhodes tells me it's symbolic. It doesn't really matter. What do you think, HR? Shall I go ahead and give it to him? I would tell him that that you and the people who are advising you are delusional. <laughs> I mean, you're delusional, and and they're, they're they're delusional based on really two fundamental aspects of the of the regime that they overlook. And the first you you already alluded to, Cliff, is the ideological uh, the ideology that drives and constrains the the regime, and that's the ideology of the revolution and their determination to export it. The, their their effort to to create uh, to generate hegemonic influence across the Middle East and you might sound think well this sounds kind of like Dr. Evil-esque right but it, I mean this is their design they say it listen to what they say and watch what they do what they've what the what the what they've done uh the, the strategy that they've employed to do that is to is to foment sectarian civil wars across the the Middle East to keep the Arab world perpetually weak and enmeshed in conflict uh, and to threaten Israel with destruction through the use of proxies, principally Hezbollah and, and Hamas. And what they do in each of these countries, Lebanon is the, is the, was the model, is to, is to, you know, to create weak, have weak governments in power that are dependent on Iran for support while they grow militias outside of that government's control that can be turned against that government if it acts against Iranian interests. You see this with them propping up Assad. You see this is what they're trying to achieve and they're failing in Iraq, which is one of the reasons why they fired a missile from Iranian territory into 
into uh, Iraq and Erbil uh, recently. It's also why they visited there because they they, they failed to assassinate uh, the current Prime Minister Mustafa Al-Khadami with a drone attack. And so now they're trying to do it through subterfuge ag- again. You see this in, in Yemen, right, with the, with the Houthis. And and uh and, and so so they've been fighting a four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, the United States, and what they call the cancerous boil Israel, who they have threatened uh, with with destruction. And and uh and and the, the second the, the second thing we ignore is that they've been fighting this proxy war for four years, and and uh and you know the the assumption that the Biden administration is operating under is that if there's sanctions relief, uh, Iran will will drop its ideology, right? Will will end its proxy war. And if you look at every attempt at conciliation with Iran, it has failed. Going back to Zbigniew Brzezinski um, flying to Algeria to meet with their foreign minister just prior to the attack on our embassy, uh, and then and then uh, you know in the, the hostage crisis, taking seventy seven hostages. Then you had uh, under you know under the uh, under the Reagan administration this idea that maybe if we sell them some arms, you know they'll release the hostages. Uh, they released some hostages, and guess what they did. They immediately took more hostages. Then, then under under George H. W. Bush, in his inauguration speech, he talks about, well, you know, maybe we could lays out the prospects of conciliation uh, with with Iran. And you know what happens there is they go they go global, right? Iran conducts assassinations in in uh, in Europe. Uh, they attack the, the the synagogue and community center in Argentina. Uh, they they blow up a, a Panamanian uh, airliner. Um, and, and, uh, and then under Clinton, right? After the Cobar Towers mass murder of Americans. Uh, actually, I didn't even talk about 83, right? In Lebanon. Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and the Reagan administration's decision not to strike back under the belief that Casper Weinberg and others like, oh, maybe, you know, this can be a, a way for us to, to fill, forge a better relationship with them. Really? And then, and then after Cobar Towers in 96, right? 96. Uh, when it comes to like that Iran was behind that, we don't strike again because, you know, we thought, hey, this, this guy, this new, you know, this new president, he's like a librarian. This is hot to me, right? Maybe we can, maybe we can work with him. Hey, man, he's the shop window. These presidents are the shop window. Who's running the show? The Supreme Leader and the IRGC. Then you, you had, after the Clinton administration, even the George W. Bush administration did not strike against Iran after they were complicit in the, the, the killing of over 600 American servicemen uh, through their, their proxy forces, which I had never really understood. And then Obama administration took it to an extreme with the concession after concession to JCPOA. And the same people are back. I mean, the same, leaving Iraq the, prematurely. Leaving Iraq so prematurely. So that the Islamic State would, would arise, which was predicted right. if you didn't have a residual force there. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it, there's a long pattern of this conciliation. This administration is taking it to a new extreme of, of supplication. Uh, we're not even, we're, we're even, we're being humiliated. We can't even talk directly to the Iranians. We're using the Russians as interlocutors. In this weak agreement, the Russians would be the guarantors of this agreement. You know, they would be the custodians of the of the uranium that was enriched above the levels that were allowed. Hey, how did that work out when we relied on the Russians to eliminate Assad, uh, Assad's chemical stockpiles in yeah. 2014 after the unenforced 2013 after the unforced red line? Right. I mean, did so I, it's just yeah. that we can't learn. We, it, this is this is astonishing it, to the degree of incompetence. But but it's actually driven by ideology. Cliff, you know, and and, yeah. and and you know, I think that that there are some people who believe that that America is the problem, mm-hmm. and and that that they don't ascribe agency and authorship over the future to our adversaries, who they view as having aspirations only in reaction to what we do. So, what masquerades as a more modest foreign policy is actually profoundly arrogant, and I think many of these people are in, in influential positions now. Brad, I see you taking furious no, notes. But. Just, there's so much good content here. I'm learning and, and excited and interested. Um, so just a quick comments. I'll try to make them quick and, and, and stream them together. Well, one, you mentioned the IRGC. You know, any, anyone listening, and, and of course, General McMaster has so many years of extraordinary service in Iraq, and I defer to him on these issues. But anyone who wants to understand the role that the IRGC played in, in the deliberate murder of Americans should read the the official history of the U.S. Army in Iraq, um, edited by people that we know and respect, Joel Rayburn and Frank Sobchak. It's a two-volume history. It's, it's long. It's, but if it's you, so darn good. It's so darn good. Yeah. And if you just do a word search by this IRGC or the Quds Force or EFPs, Explosively Formed Penetrators, you will, you will learn uh, the facts. And the facts are that Iran designed weapons, these particularly horrible weapons, 
specifically for the purpose of penetrating American armor to kill our brothers and sisters in arms. They designed them, they smuggled them into Iraq, and then they trained the terrorists how to use them. And hundreds and hundreds of Americans did not come home to their families as a result of that period, indisputable period. So, you know, anyone talking about taking the IRGC off, off the terrorist list, I'd like them to look in the eyes of wounded warriors and gold-starred families and tell them why that makes sense. Maybe that's why over 1,100 of them wrote a letter in January begging for, you know, to, to not do this until their cases were properly adjudicated in court. And then another 900 wrote it, wrote uh, specifically saying, don't do this. This makes no sense. I mean, on a common sense level, on a moral level, I would say, and on a national security level, it makes no sense. And, and I, you know, I can't improve on what General McMaster said about misunderstanding our adversary in Tehran. This is not another nation state. This is a terrorist regime. And they, they, they export their terrorism through a variety of ways, but including through their terrorist proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Houthis, who share weapons and tactics, including the use of human shields. And so that's the, the negative part. The positive part, ending on, a, on an up note here maybe, is post-Abraham Accords, we're seeing more combined military exercises in the Middle East between Israelis, Arab countries, and the United States that, it, that is building more combined capability, um, improving the readiness of each of these forces, improving their ability to, inter- to operate together, and sending a very positive deterrent message to Tehran. And more specifically, just last month, um, they stood up Combined Task Force 153 that's going to focus on the waters around Yemen. Great idea, um, but it's only going to succeed if it has sufficient intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and interdiction capability. The Egyptians hopefully should be there for obvious reasons for the Red Sea. The Saudis should be there. And I hope the Israelis participate. That would be another strong uh, diplomatic signal. And then the last thing, I think that uh, the the primary reason why the Biden administration in a misguided, perhaps good faith effort on the Iran deal is doing what they're doing, as you've said, Cliff, they want to put Iran in a box so they can go focus on more important things. And what they're they're not doing that with this Iran deal for reasons we've discussed. They're actually giving them, as Mark Dewitz has said, a patient pathway to, to a nuclear weapon. And, and when they depart the Middle East to go compete with China, who's going to be waving goodbye? Chinese who are selling drones to the UAE and are cozying up to Riyadh and who just established last year a 25-year deal with Iran and have been conducting military exercises. So, I mean, just clueless, 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 dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. And how can our friends, the Emiratis, right, who joined us and fought with great distinction in Afghanistan do this? The reason is one of the concessions we made to get to the JCP, the revive this already dead nuclear deal, right? I mean, I, you know... um, uh, anyway, you know, I, I've gone about the. So, I mean, it's it's it, it can't be resurrected. I don't think. But but w- one of the concessions we made was we undesignated the Houthis as a terrorist organization, right. and the Houthis are firing rockets and using drones to attack the Emiratis and the Saudis. And so they're looking at us like, hey, if you guys don't have our back, you know, why would we have your back? I guess we'll have to hedge with the Russians, right, and with the Chinese. And the Houthis were ungrateful that we took them off the list. How do you, amazing <laughs> has that intensifying their They doubled down the behavior that got them on the list in the first place after we took them off the list and they have no incentive to negotiate in good faith because they continue to enjoy a reliable uh, supply of Iranian arms. And so so we're losing momentum in the Abraham Accords because of this. The United States is as a broker of it. But you're, you're right. I mean, because of our inept Middle East policy, we're actually, you know, fostering maybe greater cooperation between some of the Gulf states and Israel. I mean, I, because, but, but this, you, there's also the question of why has Israel been so soft on the Russians, right? I mean, I, and well, I think there are, it's a whole long discussion. I think they're soft because they're, they, they, they have the Russians on their border in Syria and that's, absolutely, and they're absolutely. scared. Ab- ab- uh, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. They can't do what yeah. they need to do about the Iranians setting up forward operating bases unless the Russians say, okay, now at the end of this war, may change that in some way, but that's a that's a, another interesting discussion. But, but it's again, it's another great you know, our weak approach to Assad. Yes, uh, you know, yes, encourages yes. hedging behavior by the Israelis who need to take out the Iranian positions uh, that, that are there to prepare logistically for an assault on Israel. Uh, probably coordinated between Hamas, Hezbollah, and the proxy army they want to place on the border of Israel. And so, I mean, I understand the Israeli position. I, I trace it back to our policies, but also maybe I hope the IDF knows now it could probably eliminate the Russian presence in Syria in about 30 minutes <laughs> if it wanted to. I mean, well, I'm sure there are those talking about it. But when you say I'm going to pivot towards, that means you're going to pivot away. That means you're going to show your backside towards. Right. And those you're showing your backside towards may say, 
then I better make new friends. And if America is going to pivot away from me, I better think about the Russians. I better think right. about the Chinese. I better think about the Iranians. Who can I'm going to hedge my, as you say, hedge my bets? I mean, that's right. that's predictable behavior by rational actors, and our allies are rational actors. Cliff, as you, as you and I have talked about, we've long had folks on on the the right in this country who um, you know lean isolationism, if I'm going to say it politely, yeah. and then you have folks on the left who've long viewed every problem as tracing back to us. It's our, you know going to HR's uh, strategic narcissism point. They've been joined in recent years, I think, by China hawks, and I'm a China right. hawk, but uh, smart yeah. China hawks who go to the next step where I won't follow them, and that's say we need to withdraw all our forces from the Middle East because we have to focus on the Indo-Pacific. As you heard me argue earlier, there's all kinds of stuff we need to be doing in the Indo-Pacific, but we're a great power. We got to be able to walk and chew gum and we have to have at least an economy of force mission in the Middle East, because if we don't, we're going to get pulled back and we're going to, in the long run, spend more resources there as a result if we ignore the our continued interest there and persistent threats to those interests. Economy of force mission, that's another subject for a podcast for these days. Although we could go on and I'd actually love to, but I want to respectfully your time. So first of all, thank you for Look, thank you for your service, HR McMaster. Thank you for uh, previous, but also now you're working. You're working your you're working your fingers to the bone. I can see that. I, and I want to just say again how honored we are to have an association with you. Brad is. I am. Everybody at FDD is. We just va- we value your 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 wisdom. Your every, every, we just we're just very pleased to be in touch with you. So thank you for well, Cliff all that. and Brad. Th- thank you for, and thanks for the great work you do at FDD and at the Center for Military and Political Power. I learned so much from FDD from the work, Brad, that you and the team are doing every day. It's a real privilege to be, to be part of the team. And Brad, thank you. Uh, to be your colleague is was wonderful for me. It's one of the, it's a great pleasure. Listen, this has been a stimulating conversation for us. I hope it's been a stimulating conversation for all of you. If so, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to criticize, hey, I got a thick skin. I can take it. Um, if you say nasty things about Brad and uh, HR, <laughs> I won't pass it on. <laughs> but thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.